Hi, everyone. Today's incredible episode includes some content that is graphic, shocking, and may be disturbing to some of our listeners, as it should be. This podcast is designed to inspire our next generation of leaders by sharing stories, and that sometimes means remembering and acknowledging the gravity of past events and personal experiences. Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this wonderful episode, we are joined by Lauren Bean Bueda. Lauren is the founder and CEO of Girl Security, a nonpartisan, nonprofit building equitable pathways in national security for girls, women, and gender minorities. Lauren began her national security career as a policy analyst in 2003 with the Chicago based think tank where she focused on national security legal issues. In 2009, While attending law school, Lauren founded a Chicago-based consulting firm which provided strategic management and analytical support to clients on local policy issues, including exclusionary land use policies and racial segregation. Lauren is a mom to two amazing humans. She is also a former fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Truman National Security Project, American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and Chicago Council on Global Affairs. She has authored articles, reports, and book chapters on national security, foreign policy, and public policy. In 2021, Lauren was named one of the 50 women making the world a better place by InStyle Magazine. She was recently awarded the 21st Century Leader Award by the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Lauren, hi. I am so happy to see you and hear you and have you on today on Iron Butterfly. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted. It's a tremendous honor to be included on this podcast. Well, it's an honor to have you on. So thank you so much. So to kick us off, I would love to hear a little bit about how you grew up. I know we grew up in a similar area and how your path brought you to the intelligence and national security space. Yeah, so I grew up um, in Illinois, uh, although my parents were born and raised on Chicago's South Side. My dad actually grew up in extreme poverty, um, and he and several of his nine siblings worked in the Chicago stockyards, which most folks know were depicted in uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Um, but my parents moved to those suburbs when we were all children. I think I was about four. Uh, and I had a pretty typical childhood upbringing in rural Illinois. Um, I think the only exception is, as my mom would say, that I was a tremendous hellraiser with <laughs> a, ton of, a ton of chutzpah, as she would say. Um, 
And I think really my childhood is, I think, marked by really emulating my brother. I really, I don't even know how he didn't abandon me because I wore his clothes. I rode his bike. I played with all of his friends. I played with all of his GI Joes and his He-Man characters. And eventually I even followed him to college. Um, so I always tell my parents that, you know, all of my siblings are first generation college grads and, uh, which is something that makes me proud of my parents because they tremendously sacrificed for all of us. Um, and something my mom always says that I think is relevant to this conversation is she would always say that she wanted me to have an education so that when I spoke, people would listen. And oh, wow. that becomes increasingly relevant as I get older as well in this work with girl security. So tell me, was your brother older or younger? Older. Two oh. years older. So, yeah, I'm sure he loved you tagging along and all of that great stuff. <laughs> he was pretty, he was actually pretty inclusive. Like, he, that's what I say. I'm surprised he didn't get annoyed with me still. Uh, he still is, you know, one of the closest people in my life. So I feel very fortunate to, to have had him as a, a role model. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing you talk about your relationship with your brother. Um, you know, did you have other, you know, strong female characters that shaped you growing up? Uh, and did you have any favorite, you know, folks in your life that um, inspired the sense of fearlessness in you? I know you talked a little bit about having chutzpah, but, you know, who inspired that? I honestly, it sounds so silly, but Scarlet, the G.I. Joe character, is something I can really remember playing with when I was maybe four years old in the basement. And she was the only woman character of the G.I. Joes at the time. I think that kind of tracks along that I think I was always, I've always been very drawn to sort of strong women characters and artists, you know, in film, in literature. Um, but I would have to say, I think my mom, probably is someone who inspired me in the sense that she never tried to like curtail who I was because I had very non-traditional interest and she never really made me feel like I had to conform to a certain set of norms and always really encouraged me to kind of be the first. I even remember going to Washington DC when I was little and she sort of nudged me after I asked her why there wasn't a woman changing of the guard um, at the or guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Mm -hmm. And she sort of said, well, go up and ask why there hasn't been a woman yet. And she sort of nudged me and I was super embarrassed, but I did ask. Um, and so that sort of tracks to her. She was, she's always kind of nudged me into challenging my, my comfort in, in, in knowing my interests have always sort of been non-traditional. I love that. Well, did you get an answer when you asked that question? I don't think they had a good answer. I would put it that I'm way. Sure they didn't. <laughs> And I definitely think, you know, when I think back to my childhood in that time too, I mean, I always really thought I'd be a spy. I always wanted to be a spy. And so it's not lost on me how fortunate I am to be surrounded by so many amazing women in the IC, which is why this is such a, a tremendously meaningful opportunity. Oh, wow. So when did you actually decide you wanted to work in national security? You said you always kind of wanted to be a spy. And was there an event or a moment that curved your path in this direction? Yeah, I would say, I mean, from childhood, I, I remember reading a lot of books and being really interested in human emotion um, and understanding the human experience. I think I had a ton of empathy as a child, although I don't think I called it empathy. Um, and then I think as I began to study more diverse topics in school, 
and just started doing kind of more regional studies, I became really interested in conflict and um, understanding. I was really interested in like transnational criminal networks and gangs, and that became an interest area for me. But I was studying political science in college, and I didn't necessarily see that as a pathway for myself, which is strange now doing the work at Girl Security that I wasn't able to identify a pathway, but I didn't. Um, and then I returned to Chicago and um, after working for about a hot second at a law firm, sorry, dad, he kind of helped get me the job there. Um, <laughs> I, I quit because I was hired by the National Security Think Tank that was noted in my my bio. Um, and I loved the work. I loved everything about national security. This was right after 9-11. Um, we were doing a lot of work on the Patriot Act, you know, and eventually started looking at issues of due process. And um, it was just really meaningful work that I took a lot of stock in. I worked a lot of hours for not a lot of money. And <laughs> um, yeah, it was a, one of those traditional early career positions. Early career. I was going to say early career positions where you're just working yeah. hard and happy to, to be working. Happy to be working. And I think, you know, we had so much proximity to Washington that for me as a young person, there was something very exciting about going to Washington, D.C. and being able to be part of these conversations. Um, and then about six years into my employment, um, I was assaulted by my employer uh, and it was devastating. It was uh, it was following a conference. He knocked on my my hotel room door under the guise that he was handing off uh, notes from the panel that day and just forced his way into my room. And um, and it was uh it was devastating. I mean, it, it completely uh, curtailed my pathway, um, put my career into a tailspin, and never mind, just was such a traumatic event, one that I continue to grapple with. Um, and I think I'll never know the cost to me personally in terms of, you know, earning potential or professional opportunities. I will never know that. But I think over the years and trying to process my own trauma, I've studied the costs of workplace sexual assault and harassment. And it can cost, at least as far as the statistics are concerned, an individual up to a million dollars in earning potential, depending upon their path. But I think more importantly, we can't measure just the enduring effects of trauma on a person and not a person just in their personal capacity, but a person who then has to reenter the workforce. Um, and I still continue to realize the ways in which that continues to shape me even now as, uh, you know, as a mom, as a professional, and as someone leading an organization as well. Well, I, first of all, uh, I'm very, very sorry that that happened to you. And I can't even imagine um, what that might be like. But I'm, I'm very thankful for you to be sharing that story with us because, you know, we we talk about this kind of in, in, in um, it's, it's interesting because even with my own friends, we talk about this topic and, um, you know, the statistics show many of us have been assaulted in some way, shape or form um, throughout our careers. And we talk about it in, in private, you mm -hmm. know, it's not usually something that we bring to the forefront and we discuss. And, mm -hmm. and I think we need to do that more. Right. And we need to we need to talk about it so that when, if it does happen to to someone that they feel comfortable coming forward. So I, I, I'm so thankful for you 
sharing that story with us. Um, I'm wondering if you would share, you know, what would you say to your younger self now, um, kind of navigating that time and rebuilding that sense of fearlessness that you had and then was kind of stripped from you in this, um, this horrible way, you know? Yeah, it's so challenging. I mean, just what you mentioned about talking about our stories in secret, it's, I think it's when I, when I reflect on those times, um, I think of that time as sort of an amalgamation of moments where that was this particularly devastating incident of sexual violence against my, my body, my person. But it was also surrounded by all of these other moments of comments and jokes and gestures and groping. And I think at that point, I just really chose myself over what I hoped my profession and purpose would be. Um, and I think there was a lot of shame around that for me for a long time was a lot of just low self-esteem and sort of depression around I I let someone else win. I let this situation win over me. And so I would say to my younger self, who doesn't feel that distant from me, to be quite honest, but I would say that it's okay to speak out and to try to make the case and to hold someone accountable. Um, I've been the advocate for others who have been through similar um similar violence. And it's, and it's extremely difficult to be an advocate for yourself and for someone else in these cases. Um, you know, I would say certainly that I think of um, driving one day and seeing a tree go around barbed wire. And I just thought that is amazing that that can just consume this really, um, you know, extreme device and just continue to grow and thrive. And I think I would probably just reassure myself that that something so traumatic can be turned into something powerful. And I would, I wouldn't say I was, I'm grateful for the experience, but certainly I don't think that girl security would exist had it not been for that experience. I, I feel quite certain about that. That, I mean, the only word I can think about is powerful. That's just so powerful. And I'm wondering, um, you know, you talk about girl security and, and I hope to get into that in a little bit, but, um, you know, you mentor all these young women and you have young children yourself. Um, and you know, what do you say to them, to women who come to you, or even if they don't come to you and you talk about this or they, or they do come to you and they see themselves in your story, you know, how do you guide women or, or people you know, bystanders who've, who've witnessed this happening in the workplace. Um, you know, how do you, how do you guide them? How do you talk to them about stuff like this? Yeah, I think, I think this is relevant to the work of girl security in the sense that we, we take a really hands-off approach to things. So in other words, I think sexual violence is such a personal experience that what I probably tend to do more of is sort of share what I did or maybe what I would have done differently as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to provide, you know, direct support. But certainly I wish I had spoken to trusted people because I have a lot of trusted people in my life that could have and would have wanted to have been supported. And I think also just utilizing the tools available to people targeted by violence you know, hotlines and um, therapy and even non-traditional approaches, I think, to, um, you know, to trauma work. I certainly have 
come to realize how transformative those tools are, but I wish I had done it sooner. I think it would have, um, I certainly think it would have spared me a lot of difficulty, you know, in those five to seven, if not more years following that, that event. And I think, you know, as I noted earlier, I think this type of violence can come with a lot of shame, um, shame that, you know, you felt like perhaps you didn't do enough or you didn't do the right thing or, or whatever it might be. And I think, again, going back to kind of what I just noted, I think it's the idea that that can be transformed into something else that can then have value, if not just for yourself and your own family, but for others as well. And I know it's sort of cliche, but I think it's really to tell people that you're not alone. I mean, statistically, you're not alone, but I think pain can can be a very lonely, very lonely experience. So, I, you know, I don't know if this is the right way to articulate it, but, you know, girl security um, kind of was uh, created or birthed from, you know, you from this experience and and what you, you know, you did um, post this, uh, um, this time in your life. And so tell me, how did, you know, how, how did that come about and how did you kind of um I I don't even know how to really say this I don't want to say get past it because you don't get past it but how did you gain back that kind of confidence and then um that fearlessness that we talked about and then you know kind of come up with this idea of girl security I think it's you know it's um it's just something that comes to my mind. It's something I've heard from a lot of women in the IC who put themselves and put a lot at risk. Again, I didn't go into the IC, so I can only, you know, as I always say, these these are women who would have been my role models when I was younger. I think there's always this idea that you you leave you want you, you can only do a job that uh, if you're going to leave home, it has to be for something really purposeful and really meaningful. And I think almost inversely looking at my children and especially my daughter uh, who's only six now, but seeing the ways in which she's already being sexualized by society mm. and realizing that if I can't do this for her, if I can't create something and empower myself and others in this space, then who, who would I be doing it for? I mean, that's a big, that was a big part of my motivation. Um, and I think relatedly when I started the organization, I knew that it would have to create an environment in which we talked about trauma, in which we recognized what trauma looks like when it takes all of these really um, imperceptible turns in a person's life. And how do we actually create space as an organization to value that and sort of transform it into an aptitude? And that's sort of what Girl Security's mission is built around is the idea that um, perhaps not all of us experience these extremes, but I suppose many, if not all of us have experienced growing up from childhood and being sexualized or being put into corners or being kind of um, having barriers imposed on us in different capacities. And I think really at Girl Security, we're trying to transform that into a value that we bring into a space like national security, really guided the, by the belief that our personal security experience can yield better national security outcomes, can yield a more productive national security culture. Um, and I, I really believe in that, uh, and that, that, that vision, I suppose. 
So tell me, you know, tell our listeners, I, I know about girl security. I know the value and how fabulous it is. But, you know, tell folks who know nothing about girl security what it is. Um, what, what did you create? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so girl security is an organization working to build pathways for girls, women and gender minorities and national security. And we do that through three primary ways, the first of which is a training program, a skills based training program that again, brings together non traditional skills, um, like teaching and educating girls and young women how to negotiate, how to advocate, how to report on these types of things with some really cool skills around strategy and innovation and intelligence analysis and critical thinking. Um, and then we also have a nationwide mentoring network, which again, all of this is trauma informed. So we're trying to build this community of cohesion, both through individual mentors, as well as through partnerships like we have with AWIC, which has been such, such an extraordinary partnership to, again, add that additional layer of support for girls and women who get into the workforce who can have an external source that they can go to and say, hey, this thing happened to me and I, I don't know where to go and I need some help. Um, and then lastly, it's really what we call a community of practice. So trying to work with partners, employers to ensure that the cultures into which these people are advancing are safe and supportive and yield advancement opportunities for them as well. It's uh, it's just the coolest. It's the coolest organization. And I know everyone who either hears about it or is involved in it, including myself, just, you know, they just love it. It's such a great organization. And I hope that folks, we're going to tell them a little bit later how they can reach out and learn more. Um, But, you know, if you're, if you're even just interested, please, please do. uh, We'll, we'll give you the website a little bit later, but, um, it's just a fantastic organization. And so I'm wondering what surprises you about the young women and the girl security mentors? You know, what do you think they are going to bring to the national security landscape as they enter the community? Because let me tell you, I've met these women and we have one as our intern for Iron Butterfly and they are just so fantastic and just so well, they're, they're thought leaders at such a young age, which, you know, is so awesome. And so tell me, tell me what surprises you and what do you think they're going to bring this next generation is going to bring to the, the national security landscape? I love that. I do think they are thought leaders at a young age. I, I really feel often overwhelmed with how And I'm using the word mature, not in the way that we know it, but maybe perhaps advanced is better. How advanced their, their thinking is on issues related both to national security, but also to just broader society. They're extremely mindful and informed people. Um, I would also say as part of at least our organization, there is a tremendous sense of collaboration and building peer community. Everyone is genuinely cheering the other people on. And I think it's because we all want so badly to see each other succeed, especially in a historically male dominated space. And not in a way of like, ha, I told you so, but more so we can do this together and it can be fulfilling and we can we can achieve this sense of purpose that we're looking for, which I can't imagine anything more awesome than that. Um, and so I really believe that they will bring 
innovative thinking into national security because they're mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. comfortable with an intellectual risk taking than I think most adults tend to even become because I think we get so tracked into thinking a particular way um, that I think if we create that space for them sooner, if we value their ideas and ideals, it can really yield some awesome solutions to security challenges that I think we just don't have the answers to. And not only that, on a practical level, their aptitude and technology and is, and, and even ethics, the ethics around technology and, and government policy and law and things like that, they have, again, they bring this sort of innate aptitude to the table that I think will just be um, really transformative for this space. Um, and I think we'll benefit everyone. You know, it's not an us versus them uh, situation. I think it will actually build a better out, better culture with better outcomes. Um, put it this way. We don't know what that world looks like yet. So I feel like I'm willing to risk, <laughs> put a lot on the line for what that might look like. Oh my gosh. Well, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Hopefully we're still, we're still alive. Yeah, kicking around here. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I don't have my walker under in tow then. Yeah, it's fine if we do. It's fine if we do have our walker. As long as we're witnessing it, it's fine. We'll be kicking up our heels. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering what's next. You're a creator. Um, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you know, like what's next for girl security and you, I know they're kind of intertwined, but you know, I do want to, you know, you could have, uh, you could have other dreams as well that you want to accomplish. So I want to know what's next for girl security, what's next for you. And, and then, you know, we'll, I'd love for you to tell the listeners, um, you know, if they are interested in learning more about girl security, how, how they can do that. Yeah, we, we are in such an exciting place right now as an organization. Um, we have, you know, four years plus under our belt. And so we're starting to see the impact of our model play out in real time with um, fellows and mentees in our program, securing internships and full-time positions in, in and outside the federal government and industry as well, academia, the social sectors. So I think for us this year and next year is really going to be expanding what we see as a really cutting edge training program to simply accommodate more participants. You know, we get over 150, 170 applications to our training program. We, we want to take everyone. We don't want this to be a competitive space. So I think scaling up our training program is what's really exciting and working with our partners to work alongside us mm -hmm. to do that work, I think is really meaningful. Um, I think it's also just continuing to create more on-ramps for girls and women into security and challenging notions of what national security pathways look like. Right. You know, we start from a place of recognizing that if we don't start to see national security pathways in the way they actually play out in society, we're not going to have any chance of recruiting more diverse representation across the workforce. So I think for us, there's a balance of showcasing the on-ramps and, and getting stakeholder buy-in to do that again alongside us. Um, we're always looking for more mentors. So certainly growing the mentor network is always positive, as well as just growing our support for the mentor network. We have a lot of big plans for 
creating more opportunities for mentors to not just support their development, but also develop some share in what we're learning as part of our work to kind of build the next generation. We do a lot of really interdisciplinary work in mental health and social science and data science. And so we really want mentors to be a part of that work with us. Um, and I think probably relatedly is the more we grow, the more we're asked to speak about, okay, well, how do we actually build workplaces that are safer? And I think where we can add a lot of value is talking about trauma-informed work and what that actually looks like in a, mm -hmm. in a workforce setting and trying to build consensus, I think, in commitment with future employers, if not present employers, of the girls and women in our program. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I just... <laughs> I really have no dream. This really is my dream come true. I think if I can, you know, um, if I can uh, find some balance, that might be a good goal. For That's me. a good goal. That's a good dream. <laughs> I think, you know, if you're doing what you love right now, that's that should be the goal for all of us, right, is to get to a place where you're really you're doing what you absolutely love or what you've what your dream is and that's what you're doing. And that's why, that's why it's so successful. That's why it, it you're so good at it. It's, it's because it's your dream. So, you know, we're happy. We're happy that you're living your dream. So tell us how um, we can get in contact with girl security. Give us the, where, uh, what's your website and do you have yeah, social yeah. media hand, uh, handles and all of that great stuff? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about the organization or if you want to sign up to be mentored uh, or mentor, you can visit girlsecurity.org. And then we have a really annoying social media handle, which is at girlsecurity underscore because girl security was taken. So, uh. <laughs> so you got to get the underscore in your uh, in your social media. And we're most active on Instagram and uh, mostly on Instagram and Twitter, but um, we're, we're elsewhere in the social media atmosphere as well. A hundred percent. And LinkedIn, because I know a lot oh, of yes, the, the people who are currently in national security, um, they might only have a LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, so yes, definitely on LinkedIn. So we've, we've unfortunately come to the end of this episode. I just, I hate saying this, but we do have one more question for you. Um, and it's our fun one. So as you know, um, we end each of our episodes with the same question and in keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly. If you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I did not even have to look far for this because it's what my family calls me, which is Eagle Ears. Oh, um, my goodness. And, and the reason being that I can listen to multiple conversations at one time and actually listen and hear the conversations underway. So sometimes in like a social setting, my husband will just say eagle ears. Even if I'm like halfway across the room, he's like, she's listening right now. And I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like a very easy one. I didn't have to pull anybody. That that That's the one that would be my my code name. And I think it's, it suits me. I love it. I love it. Um, I love that you didn't even have to think about it. That I that's didn't just who you are. Um, yeah. I think that's a first. I actually think that's a first. So I love it. Lauren, um, thank you so, so much for sharing your time and your very, very personal story with, with us. Um, I am just, I feel so lucky and honored that, that I get to call you my friend. And I think the folks listening today are going to feel lucky and honored that they got to hear your story. So just thank you so much. Thank you for 
everything you do for this community and just bringing your authentic self to everything you do, you know, we love you for it. So thank you so much. If you or someone you know is in danger of or is a survivor of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Thanks for joining us. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we want to thank Katie Naquin Hopkins, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. <laughs>